Olivia's. This is Sarah Despair. Um, I just wanted to tell everybody that um, I had the honor of meeting uh, the Bush guys at AWP this year and had an absolutely wonderful time hanging out. They're really smart and really funny and really genuine in their love for books and, you know, the writing community. Um, and I want to wish them a happy first anniversary. And also to say that, you know, the show is fun, really fun to listen to. It's great. Um, but also that, whoops, you guys are doing a really valuable service. Because the goal of any writer should be dialogue about their work, and that's what you both are fostering, is dialogue um, in the writing community. And it's fantastic. So congratulations, and I look forward to listening to another year of Booked. Bye. Welcome to Booked, where two guys have been telling you about the books they've been reading for a year now. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Messed you up a little bit there, huh, hearing a woman's voice at the top of the show? <laughs> A very nice complimentary note from from uh, the the lovely Sarah Destere who we met at AWP, and we chose that lovely voicemail message from a lovely woman um, to kick off our anniversary show. So there you go. If you guys weren't aware, uh, April first is when we're recording this. It is officially our one year anniversary on the Book Podcast. We made it a year, everyone. Thanks for everybody's support and uh, for lending us your ears. Yep, it's eleven and a half months longer than I thought we'd go. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's been crazy. It's been awesome. We're really excited about it. And uh, Sarah is the first of several uh, um, voicemails. We had people call in and give us some very nice thoughts about about the show and everything. And uh, <laughs> some people just kind of rambled about their lives. But all in all, it was a lot. It was nice to hear what people had to say about us. So we're going to instead of the you know 20 minutes of voicemail messages, we're going to break them out throughout the course of the show, um, uh, much like we're going to do right now with this message right here. Hey, Rob and Livius, this is uh, Frank Edler, your number one fan. Uh, just calling in to wish Book the happy first anniversary. Uh, man, you guys have just been just awesome, awesome podcast. Uh, I, everything has been, like, spot on, even when I don't care about, like, the books you're reading. It's still, like, cool to hear you guys reviewing and everything. And, uh, I mean, I've met so many, read so many great great authors now that I never would have read before. I'm talking about like Caleb Ross and, and of course, Josh Beach and Todd Brown, David James Keaton. I mean, really, really good stuff. And I mean, my nook is just maggoty maggoty with tons of stuff from May December publishers. So I got more than I can read for another year anyway. So here's to another year of book. Have fun guys. That was Frank Edler, the self-proclaimed number one fan of Booked. Um, I don't know if anybody's fighting him for that title, but <laughs> um, always nice to hear from Frank. I'm glad. I'm sure he's going to be happy that he's finally on an episode. We mentioned him uh, frequently enough, so he actually his voice actually made it onto one of the episodes. That's kind of cool. Yeah, thanks a lot, Frank. That was a great message. We like Frank. We're Frank's number one fan. There you go. <laughs> Frank, if you get T-shirts made, we'll wear them. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I guess we should probably get into what we've been doing for a year, which is actually reviewing books. Yes, we actually have been reading books. Um, I know we've been kind of wandering around, just throwing out live readings and stuff like that. But in the background, we've been flipping pages. And Livius is going to tell you our latest book, which we're going to talk about tonight. Um, yeah, our latest book is Sacre Bleu, to quote Rob from the last episode when we <laughs> mentioned it. Bleu. 
Sacre Bleu by Christopher Moore, something we've both been looking forward to for for quite a while now. Uh, probably since I closed the cover on Fool, was that a year ago maybe? A little over, yeah. yeah. So we'll tell you a little bit in case you've you know been living in the dark about uh, the author, Christopher Moore. He's the best-selling author of 11 novels, including the international bestsellers Lamb, A Dirty Job, and You Suck. His latest is Sacre Bleu, which we'll be talking about tonight. All right. And actually, this is uh, a, a quite a long synopsis, but it's actually probably about half of what the full synopsis we got from William Morrow Publishers is. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm going to do my best to get this in one take. Uh, set in the Impressionist art world of the Belle Epoque, this tale begins when Vincent van Gogh is murdered, yes, murdered, not commits suicide, in the wheat fields of Avers. Meanwhile, back in Paris, his close friend Henri Toulouse-Lautrec... I'm going to totally butcher every French name in this in this uh, episode, <laughs> so just bear with me. And our young protagonist, a struggling artist baker named Lucien Lassard, uh, try to piece together how their friend Vincent died. For something sinister is going on in the thriving art world of Paris and other artistic luminaries of the era, including Renoir, Monet, Pissarro, Manet, Cezanne, Serrat, Gauguin, are also somehow connected and playing pivotal roles in this imaginatively dark and funny tale. Could the diabolical answer lie with the color man, a twisted little gnome of a man who was always tempting artists with his lush pigments, most notable a bewitching shade of blue known as Sacre Bleu. And what role does the intoxicatingly beautiful Juliet play? She is the lover and muse of our young hero, Lucian, and she has an uncanny gift for discovering artistic talent. And a secret connection to the color man. That was one hell of a synopsis. <laughs> and like I said, probably about half of it. The synopsis does go on to talk about the uh, historical um, significance of the color blue and how more kind of ties in like historical facts with his story and everything. So it's really interesting, but goddamn, you know, I'm out of breath. <laughs> Yeah, but you managed to do it all in one take with no mistakes. That was incredible. I know. <laughs> so if you hear any like significant bumps in the audio, it's it's not me cutting it together. It's just a, a he actually read it just like that. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy exactly. how you could do that. Yep. So uh, this is a book that's uh, going to be pretty easy to spoil. So we're not going to do a lot of. Uh, we won't be able to talk very much about certain details of the book. So we want to let you guys, when you uh, when you read this, kind of discover it on your own, like we did. Yeah, I mean, we're going to fill in a little bit more detail than than you know. I bumbled through in the synopsis, but it's it's the kind of book where it's got a lot of mystery that you know kind of the payoff is in the reveal. So I don't, we don't, we don't want to spoil that for you guys. Nope. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the story and the setting. So um, my first thought about it is, um, and it's probably the first text message I sent Livius about the book. Cause we had <laughs> one uh, print copy of the book that he read. And then I, he had to pass along to me to read the book takes place kind of in a, in a large span of time. Um, and it starts as, as early as when the protagonist was like seven years old when he was a kid and it goes all the way to when he's in his thirties and it, and it doesn't stay very linear. It jumps around a lot. So you'll see him as a kid, you'll see some stuff when he's an adult, you'll see some stuff in between and it all, I mean, it, it makes sense in the way the story runs, but it's, it's definitely very jumpy between different parts of, of, uh, Lucian's life. 
Yeah, I mean, with like a lot of other books, I mean, different things that authors do with books, it takes a little getting used to. Um, it, it, I was able to fall into the flow of it much quicker than I thought I was going to when I realized that it jumps around a little bit. But yeah, it is noted at the beginning of every chapter what the date is. Of course, I'm not, uh, my little brain isn't capable of remembering the date from one chapter to the next, so I had to use like context of story to figure it out <laughs> on my own. Another big thing that um, is pretty obvious from the synopsis and from just knowing anything about the book is... It's pretty much about French Impressionist painters, um, all of which really exist in real life except for the protagonist, Lucien. Um, so it's got a ton of people. It's got Van Gogh, Renoir, Monet. I've mentioned them all before. And uh, Lucien's partner in crime in the book is uh, Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, who is an actual painter in the you know in that time period. And <laughs> so he's like the the kind of the best friend. Uh, he's in it as much as as you know the the protag is. And um, <laughs> most of his characterization, he's probably the one that I thought was probably the funniest of the characters, is that he's a boozer. He's always drinking and he's always hanging out in brothels. Um, and, and yeah, he's just he's like the funniest, I think, of the of the bunch. Yeah, interesting that, that you mentioned that because I didn't really think about it in the context of all of the characters being real except for Lucian. Um, it's very similar to my favorite Christopher Moore book, Lamb, which was about Biff, the only fictional character. Well. All right, the whole story's about the Bible. Just, <laughs> All right, hang on. I was, more, written, more, <laughs> I was more, raised as an atheist, so I'm going to take issue with what you're about to say. The only person <laughs> that, that more created for that story was was Biff, and that's kind of the same way here is that Lucien is who we, whose, whose eyes we basically see the story through, and uh, he's the only <laughs> fictional character yep. amongst all these great painters. <laughs> And really, like, I mean, outside of, you know, the bits of, of story that we were able to reveal, this, I mean, for me, this book is all about the characters. Moore, I love Moore's books, and, and he writes such interesting people. A lot a lot of what we are going to be able to say is really going to be the characterization of, of these different people. So I thought maybe we could spend some time on that. Sure. You want me to start talking a little bit about uh, characters then? Love it. Do it. So Lucien, who we've mentioned um, several times now, he's the protagonist. Uh, he's a baker whose father was a baker but was also in love with art, although apparently he wasn't uh, ever very successful at it. Um, Lucien has the exact same dreams. He's a baker who really wants to be a painter, and he's kind of inherited these friends that his father had, um, which is you know some of the greatest painters of all time. Mm -hmm. And the Lassard family is, is <laughs> just kind of fun in general. Like you said, the father was a, a hardworking baker who uh, loved painting and everything. The mother is this, <laughs> this kind of, um, she's kind of the hard ass of the family. And uh, she's just really overbearing and, and tough and not uh, mean or anything. Like not in a mean way, it's a very loving, you know, relationship and everything. But like, she's the, she's the one that, you know, try, keeps people in line and everything. And then uh, he's also got a couple of sisters too, who kind of follow along the way that, that her mom, that his mom is, I guess. In mentioning the mother, see, I wanted to disagree with you. I found, although she didn't appear in the book, um, anywhere near as, uh, as much as, as Henry, um, I found her to be the funniest, although her appearances were much more minimal. Like every scene she was <laughs> in was just fantastic in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Uh, another big character in the book is Juliet. Um, who is uh, the woman that Lucian's in love with. 
uh, his muse, I guess you could say. Um, she disappeared. Like, he had known her, and then she disappeared for a few years kind of unexpectedly. Um, and this was right at the beginning of the book that you, you learn this stuff, so it's not really that much of a spoiler. Um, so he was kind of suffering from a broken heart that she was gone. Um, and, when he, and you know, toward the beginning of the story, she, she suddenly returns and is back in his life. And he's still hopelessly in love with her. And uh, even as the story continues and he learns more about who she is and what made her, you know, absent for that time, you know, he's still got that like strong, strong love for her. You got anything, you got any thoughts about her, her as a character, Louis? Really liked her. She was very, uh, so this all takes place in the 1800s, but she was like kind of uh, ripped from, from today's pages as a woman, which, which was kind of cool to see, you know, people's reactions to, to her character or someone like her, um, who's well ahead of her time, you know, almost, you know, I don't want to say like a feminist, but just a very modern woman, um, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with painters and people in the 1800s. Yeah. Strong and confident and not like, uh, not allowing herself to be, you know, just subjugated to, to basic roles in life and stuff like that. Um, and which, her progression, as far as funny, is is good because she starts off, you know, fairly normal and she gets funnier and funnier as the book goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as the book progresses, we spend more and more time with her. So we get to kind of like it's like we're meeting someone and getting to know them, you know, as the book goes along, which is kind of cool. The other uh, character we should uh, mention is the the catalyst for the entire story, the color man. And he's a very, very mysterious um, little guy who, you know, keeps popping up in places. And to, to define what a color man is, is he's the person who would sell paints to painters. Um, you know, painters could, you know, all paint is made from a variety of things. And more goes into pretty good detail about how paint's made. But basically, painters didn't have time to screw around with that. They could make their own paint. But what they did was they would just find somebody, a color man, who... Um, who would just sell it to him. So the color man is this mysterious character. That's kind of the catalyst for the whole, for the whole Sakura Ulu story. Mm-hmm. He's, he's one of those characters that's shrouded in mystery. You don't really know what's going on with him. You just know that he kind of puts people on edge. He's kind of creepy. He gives people a bad feeling. And even though like sometimes they deal with him because like he has the paints and if they need paints, obviously they go to him or I mean, obviously they deal with him. They, no one ever seeks him out. He just kind of shows up and, uh, and uh, he's got a kind of creepy vibe to him. <laughs> a little bit. He's goddamn funny, too. They're all funny. I mean, it's just like any other Moore book. Like, everything about this goddamn book is just hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, one, my favorite character in the book is the Henri Toulouse Law Trek character, um, who, like I said before, is Lucian's kind of partner in crime. I think, personally, that, I mean, he, he appears a lot in the book, and he's probably my favorite, the funniest character in the book, uh, He's actually a count, um, but more by title than how he carries himself, because he's pretty much just a boozer that hangs out um, <laughs> in brothels with uh, prostitutes and stuff. Uh, but he is a painter as well, and um, they they actually more one of the things that he did throughout the book, which I thought was really cool, was um, there's actually paintings like pictures of of actual real paintings throughout the book, and um, you see some of some of his actual paintings and. Moore does a great job of weaving these paintings into what the characters are talking about and um, the personalities of the characters. So you see some of the paintings that this goofball has done, and it kind of, I guess to me at least, um, what am I trying to say? Made him more real? Yeah, it, it added another dimension to him. Like, he wasn't just this goofball who's always, you know, nailing random women and, and always constantly drunk. You know, seeing these paintings gives him another 
you know, a little bit more depth. Absolutely. Can I talk a little bit about the story? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, most of the story takes place when, um, Lucian is in his you know thirties, I guess. Is mm-hmm. that about right? Yeah. yeah. So the majority of the story takes place there. It kind of flashes back to his youth and some of the other people's past, you know, here and there throughout the book. Um, you know, and we didn't talk about the entire cast of characters because that includes cameos by, you know, just a ton of painters, um, most of whom I'd heard of. I'm not really familiar with with painting and artists. Um, and I'm sure there, there was a ton more that I didn't. But, I mean, it's got to be a cast of you know, 20, 30 painters total if you count every single one that's mentioned. So it, it kind of just takes a look at uh, at his life as Juliet comes back into it and the, the you know, the following, I don't know, three, four or five months maybe um, with Juliet in his life when he decides to get very, very serious about painting by painting a, um, uh, you know, kind of an epic portrait of her. And um, the real conflict in the story starts when um, at the very beginning, it starts out with um, Van Gogh. He's he's off. Uh, painting out and you know outside of the open and uh in history historically it's said that he shot himself with a revolver even though they never found the gun um and then walked to the doctor um who was treating him but he eventually died uh in the book um he's killed by someone else and and so but obviously all of his friends are told this story about how he shot himself but then walked to the doctor and and it doesn't really wash with them. They're like, why would someone try to kill themselves, but then go look for treatment? And so it, it kind of that's the first kind of red flag in, in these painters' lives of like, you know, well, something's not going on. And Van Gogh had sent a, a letter to his brother, you know, about what was going on with him. And so we start seeing these pieces of a puzzle where things aren't quite right in these painters' lives. And it it all kind of has as as time goes on, they figure out more and more about what the circumstances surrounding it, what what the main you know element and all these weird happenings in their lives is, and that's really what the conflict of the story is: is trying to figure out what's going on that's messing up all these painters' lives and stuff. It's really interesting. So that being said, the book is also about just love and sacrifice, and um, you know it kind of covers the. Uh, all of these painters or a lot of these painters, you know, with these great loves that they had in their lives and these inspirations they had to be great and stuff and sacrifices they had to make. And, you know, so, I mean, it's not, it's a little bit of a mystery. It's really funny, but it does cover some other topics too. Just, you know, how it's what I'm looking for, how enamored some of these artists can become with their subjects. Mm-hmm. And really just how passionate you have to be to make, like it was the whole idea of like, you have to have passion you have to be willing to sacrifice um, in order to make something that was really, you know, beautiful and, you know, that would stand the test of times and stuff like that. And and so a lot of what you see is these artists going to extremes um, for their art. Okay. And, and it's interesting. The characterization of women in the book is really interesting because uh, obviously back then um, it was a whole different story for women. Um and even one of the painters that, that is talked about is a woman. I don't remember her name, and I feel like an asshole for not having that prepared. Um, and she was definitely an anomaly where, you know, uh, everybody, every all the other painters recognized her ability and everything. But still, she was kind of, she didn't hang out with the painters. Um, the stuff that she painted was all around the house because she didn't have the luxury of being out in the world, you know, doing these things that other painters did. But then... Um, the other characterization of women you see 
is from the perspective of painters who are painting women, like doing nudes or doing portraits or whatever, and how they feel about them. And in a lot of the book, they're not so much... <laughs> they're not objectifying women, but they're seeing them as, you know as this thing that's making art, not necessarily as much of a person as like what they're doing uh, as part of this creation of art process. If that makes sense. I understood it perfectly, but I read the book. That's true. (laughs) Um, The other thing I found really interesting, you know, you talked about like these, but you know, her not being considered a painter and being able to do these other things painters do. And, and, you know, the historical, you know, accuracy, and we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, a little later, but, um, it was great to see, well, not great to see, it was interesting to see how, you know, like impoverished most of these guys were, you know, you think, you know, you think like Monet and you think like that guy, you know, is probably, you know, really well off. So many of these people weren't really recognized for their talents until so long after their death that with the exception of, of, uh, the count of Henry, um, it seemed like all of them were pretty broke most of the time. You know, that starving artist is a, is a term for a reason, I guess. <laughs> well, just like when you think of the big names, you don't, you know, you think mm-hmm. that those guys are all real popular. It's like talking about like Shakespeare. You know, you think, oh, Shakespeare must have been this big deal. Well, he really wasn't because it wasn't until after he was dead that his stuff was popular. Mm-hmm. Well, from what I understand, too, and this is just, um, you know, the extensive, you know, five minutes I spent on Wikipedia kind of reading about Impressionism and these folks. Um, they essentially started these these types of the French Impressionists started in a different direction than traditional painting. And it's actually at one point in the book, there was um, I don't know if it was government uh, funded or sanctioned or whatever, but uh, the city had a kind of like a gallery thing that they did every year. And people would submit their paintings and, and every one of the Impressionists was, you know, just shut down like they never were included. And, in, you know, within the within the book at least. And, and it was because the impressionists were kind of doing something different than what, you know, the aristocratic, whatever people that were judging these paintings considered to be actual art. So I think it took a while for, and I could be completely wrong and I fully invite anybody who knows anything about art to call me out on that. But like my basic reading, that was the kind of feeling I got about it. And so it probably took a while for that type of, art to actually be, you know, recognized for, for, you know, what it was, I guess. It's the same. I mean, it's the same impression I got from the book. Although I did, I didn't do the five minutes of Wikipedia research that you did. <laughs> yeah. And the same thing, like they had like their, uh, their rejection gallery, which I thought was kind of a cool concept. Yeah. Like all the stuff that didn't make it to like the good gallery, they set it all up somewhere else for people to look at. So yeah. And then, like where, uh, like where our podcast would be if there was a podcast <laughs> gallery, and in Theo Van Gogh's uh, gallery. <laughs> um, trying to think of anything else I want to say about the story. It's really difficult. I mean, we're we're throwing you pieces and impressions of a book that is just you know uh, really really detailed and involved and and has lots of color and lots of you know lots of stuff going on and it's tough for us without spoiling anything to talk about. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much, I, I'm, I'm kind of the wells running dry on things that we can, we can say without spoiling things. Talk a little bit about Moore's writing style. Um, you know, we've said it several times, uh, you know, he's got historic accuracy. There's a great story underlying, you know, that the, the, you're following through, but through the whole thing, it's funny not to, you know, chuckle out loud at some of this stuff, which is where, 
I personally find more at his best is is in his in his comedy in the books, and it's these you know, silly twists of phrase or, you know, play on words or whatever, you know, misunderstandings between characters that's just absolutely phenomenal and makes them worth reading just 100%. I'm with you. And uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about what do I like about it most? And uh, the thing that I think that that comes through a lot with Moore's writing is, I mean, it is funny a lot and, and, it's, and there's a lot of goofiness, but it's in a way where you know that he's writing it in a very it's a very intelligent person that's writing it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, I mean, anybody can just kind of write slapsticky nonsense, but like the way he crafts a situation to get to that, that goofy punchline takes a lot more thought than you would expect it to, I guess is, is my impression of his writing, but I really appreciate it. And, uh, it's one of the reasons that, yeah, I've read every book the dude's written. Yeah. Clever. It's all clever. It's not just funny. And, um, you know, we talked about this on the show, how I don't even watch comedy films anymore because I just don't, get it as far as the humor goes is intelligent clever humor Mm -hmm. which is what makes it terrific in my opinion like i said not to short you know change the story or the character development and stuff because all of that's there but i pick up a more book because you know i want to feel good i want to have a smile on my face while i'm reading and that's what this book does yeah and that's the great thing that like that's one of the things i like the most about him is like he doesn't have to sacrifice one to have the other um and lamb is is a great example of that i know we're kind of going off story but just to you know illustrate the point lamb is a very serious i mean (laughs) if you want to talk about a serious topic the son of god i don't think you could get more serious than that and i mean the book's funny it's got a lot of really funny parts but like it really does inspire some deep thought about you know the origins of 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 the son of god were that to be true (laughs) you know and and philosophy and how people treat each other and stuff so you've got a guy that can can really solidly balance funny moments uh, you know even kind of like some sexual moments and stuff with these like deep philosophies and and thoughts about like you know the son of god and how would jesus come to be the savior of people it just wouldn't you know it's not like it's like a switch so things like that um, are what i really dig about the way that more writes agreed and you're right. He does throw the sex stuff in there, and it's always just really <laughs> tongue-in-cheek humorous, too. I was just looking at your your first quote there as you were saying that, and kind of kind of smiling over over the you know the intelligence there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's that balance. He strikes the balance, and I think that's the thing I like the most about him is that. All right, and one thing I want to mention, um, and and again, I feel like you know it's tough to do justice to a story that we don't want to spoil, but um, in his afterward, uh, Moore does a is really careful to tell you about you know what he did to research and everything and and based on what he said the use of these painters is pretty historically it's pretty faithful to history um he does go off script in certain parts obviously if he needs to portray a part of a personality that he couldn't find information about you know obviously he kind of fills in gaps and stuff like that uh he also kind of (laughs) he also kind of goes off script uh, when it comes to, you know, certain romantic, you know, things or sexual things that may not have happened. But, uh, other than that, um, I guess basically, I mean, he has like a 10 page afterward where he talks in detail about what research he did and, and which specific parts were or were not accurate in the book. And a lot of it, at least most of it, including who had syphilis is pretty faithful to what history has on the books. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of thing always, um, as we said earlier, like putting the paintings in the book and stuff always adds that level of, of authenticity to the story, even though the story is completely fiction. 
um, you know, it, it gives it, you know, more of a realistic kind of feel. It validates the story, I guess, in, in my opinion, like just gives it more validation. Oh, one more thing we should mention before we move on to quotes, too. This is the prettiest book I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. we I can't believe that we didn't lead with that. We're, we're terrible about leading with the interesting stuff. Yes. So apparently the we have a copy of the first edition um, and uh, it, it has a beautiful. Co- so the first thing I do when I get a hardcover book, which I don't very often anymore because God invented e-readers. But, um, you know, the first thing I do is I, you know, I look at the dust jacket, I read the inlay card, you know, whatever, and then I take it off. So this book doesn't have a dust jacket. It has a little strip across the bottom that just says the title and Christopher Moore, and it serves as kind of a spine. It's a quarter of the, the size of the page. And the cover is actually printed um, right, onto the, right onto the book itself. And it's this kind of blue, somewhat kind of abstract you know, picture with a guy in the background and stuff, just very, very pretty. So Sans Dust Jacket, easily the prettiest book I've seen that didn't have like gold gilding on it. And somehow you failed to mention that there is a fully naked woman on the cover. Um, is that what that was? <laughs> yeah, she's sitting on a, a gigantic palette, like a paint painter's palette um, with just certain things draped over essential areas. And she's holding a cup full of... Uh, I'm holding the book in my hand. That's why I know all this. But uh, she's got a she's got a cup with uh, uh, paintbrushes in it, and the Eiffel Towers in the background, like Olivia said, with some dude in a bowler hat. Uh, that must be the color man, but he doesn't look nearly as weird as it's described in the book. Um, the other cool thing about this book that Olivia's pointed out to me before I got my hands on it is that all the uh, all the print in the book, all the writing, including you know the chapter titles, the actual words. The numbers, everything is done in blue, which I thought was pretty cool. And which I read is only going to be available in the first edition copy. Everything after that is going non-blue. And I wonder if that, I don't know if that's going to extend, or maybe you know if that's going to um, extend to the actual paintings, because there are probably, I'm just guessing because Rob has the copy now, but um, <laughs> probably 30, 25, 30 mm-hmm. actual color paintings appear in the book. So you can actually see very miniature, you know. Um, you know, pictures of the actual paintings that are being talked about, mm-hmm. and the front and back, um, the front and the back of the book, the inside cover has. Um, I, I'd have to say this is kind of like period specific map of Paris, which is pretty cool too. I thought that was the map from the Hobbit. You think everything's the map from the Hobbit? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but anyway, so if you're a collector and you want this book and you want it in the paper form, you're going to want to get the first edition because it's it's I can't imagine, um, you know, what it would be like, not the way we had it. But I can tell you it's easily the prettiest book I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a very, very pretty book. Oh, one of the other things I want to mention, too, that um totally forgot about was he did this cool like uh, <laughs> I think the reason I want to mention it is because there's three or four times throughout the book where he does um, these little interludes in the book. And <laughs> of course, I just wanted to say interlude, but uh, essentially where he just he steps fully away from the story and he just talks about the color blue. And there's some really interesting stuff that he says in there about, you know, um, and obviously some of it's made up. Uh, a lot of it's probably not made up. But, you know, he talks about how why color is perceived the way it is with the human eye. And it has to do with light refracting off things and stuff like that. Uh, and then others, other obviously kind of weird made up stuff too. But I like the fact that he's got some interludes 
throughout the book that just talk about the color blue. Because really, when he started this book, he set out to write a book about the color blue. I would have to say he was very successful. He did. He did. <laughs> I mentioned blue is my favorite color. No. Was it before you read this book? Uh, yeah. Okay. And I, I, I like yellow. But I hope he starts. I, I we read he, a book all about yellow. It was from Pablo to stare. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope that Moore's next book is about the number nine. There you go. It's my favorite number. Get before it. we get too far off track, you want to you wanna go through a couple of your quotes? Yeah, but before I do, I want to say, <laughs> I, I actually have a bit of an email history with Chris Moore. Back when I was reading The Dirty Job, I sent some emails back and forth with him because I noticed on one of his books that it said, email the author at you know this place, and I was reading through Dirty Job. And there was this one thing that I loved so much in the book that I felt like I had to reach out to him, even if he never, you know, responded. Uh, And he did. He did respond, I think, within like the first four hours. So I was really floored by that and like, you know, starstruck and everything. And I had sent him another couple emails and he replied back. And I mentioned uh, he was we were talking about Chicago for some reason. And I, I was very obsessed with coffee at the time. And I said, if you're ever in Chicago... I can tell you where the great, you know, the best place to hang out coffee are or whatever. Some dumb, you know, trying to make myself sound cool to an author that I admire thing, which I'll admit freely. We all do it. So I'm not, <laughs> it's not like I'm the only asshole to try and be cool to someone who they admire. <laughs> and, and this is his response, which I thought was really cool and, and is now very appropriate to what we're talking about. He said, my coffee shop of preference in Chicago is the art Institute. I wander around looking at art until I get good and spaced out. Then I sit in the cafeteria and watch some old lady eat green beans. By that time, everything looks like art. It's a great use of caffeine. So, Very, very fitting. <laughs> um, now, the last email you got from him was the restraining order, right? Mm. <laughs> we won't go into that. Now, Livius did mention quotes, and I have. Here's the thing about quotes this time around. Livius, do you have any quotes? No. Why? Because we had a paper book and I didn't know how to get quotes. So here's what I have. I have, because I was hoping to get that copy of the book back before we did this. I, I would have had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, eight, eight quotes, because I have the page numbers down. So if anyone wants, I can give you the page numbers of where these quotes would be, but I have nothing for you. Uh, since I was stingy and I didn't give you the book back, why don't you take one of my quotes to do? You are so generous to me. I'm going to take this first one because I actually really like this one. Um, this is a this is a, a, a prostitute um, having a conversation with with Lucian about Henry. This work is not supposed to be complicated, Monsieur. When I woke yesterday, he was painting my toenails. Well, he is an excellent painter," said Lucian, as if that might ease the girl's anxiety. He glanced at her feet, but the whore wore black stockings. I'm sure they're magnificent. Yes, they were as pretty as a Chinese box, but he used oil paint. He told me I had to keep my feet in the air for three days while it dried. He offered to help. A rascal, that one is. <laughs> Just a perfect example of like the, the, you know, the, the good, intelligent, clever humor that, that he interlaces throughout this book. For sure. This next one I like, and um, actually, I think it was in the afterword. Moore actually said that I th- this actually happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Uh, Pissarro was one of the painters that uh, that was friends with uh, Lucian's father when Lucian was a kid, and was raffling one of the one of Pissarro's paintings at his at his bakery, and they announced the winner was this little was this girl, 
And uh, <laughs> so she comes up to claim her prize. And Pizarro was really, you know, nice and warm and welcoming to her. And <laughs> in response, she said she she said that uh, she asked if she could get a, one of the sticky buns in the bakery instead of the painting. And this is uh, <laughs> this is the response that Moore wrote. The smile with which Pissarro had greeted the girl fell as if he'd been suddenly shot in the face with a paralyzing dart of pygmy art critics from the darkest Congo. It's just good stuff. And uh turns out, I guess, you know, later on she said she was joking, and I think that's the case, too, in reality. Yeah, it's so much funnier if she wasn't. It's true. All right. <laughs> this is, again, just like the, the, the humor that Moore brings to it. Um this is um this is when Lucian was uh in learning he was he was in a class and um when he first started drawing nude models uh he you know was having trouble not being aroused by the female nudes and so he would try and you know concentrate on you know having seen male nudes to to kind of keep his mind off of the sex business um and so in in this scene he had accidentally they were drawing a woman and he had accidentally drawn <laughs> testicles on the woman so the teacher says, Lassard, why have you drawn a nutsack on this model? You're drawing a Venus, not a circus freak. You said she was shape and line. Are you serious? I am here only to teach serious painters. And then Toulouse-Lautrec would step up behind the master, adjust his pince-nez as if fine-tuning the focus, and say, that is a serious nutsack on that Venus. Indeed, their friend Emile Bernard would say, stroking his mossy beard, that is a nutsack of a most serious aspect fantastic stuff right there i have like a dozen more quotes i don't think i can do i don't think i can do many more but um yeah there this is like throughout the entire book this is just the way that christopher moore writes and and it's at the same time it's 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 subjects that could you know written poorly be offensive but really it's just kind of like entertaining and, and a little bit endearing the way he writes it so there's this really long kind of thing towards the beginning of the book where lucian and uh his parents are telling him about women or he's reflecting on what his parents had taught him about women. And the mom was saying how they needed to be, you know, treated really nice and they're special people. And the father was talking about how they were cruel and selfish devils and that kind of thing. But then Renoir uh, was talking to him as well about women and, and said some funny things. So here it is. Uh, And his teacher Renoir had indeed told him all women are the same. A man needs to simply find his ideal and marry her to have all the women in the world. But even if you have found the one, Renoir continued, it doesn't mean you won't want to see them all naked. It is a sick man who is unmoved by the sight of a pretty breast. That's good stuff, sir. Very, very good stuff. Do you have any more or you want to wrap this thing up? Here's another quick one. Uh, Lucian opened his eyes to see Henry eye to eye with him, his cheek pressed to the floor. The two were curled up like battling twin fetuses facing off for in utero fisticuffs. <laughs> Oh, man. Good stuff. All right. I could go on all night. I'm not going to. Uh, There's too many good quotes. But, I mean, it's a Christopher Moore book, so it's just going to be chock full of good quotes. I hope that this did some sort of justice to the way he writes, even though I did probably a poor job reading them. Um, But, yeah, just chock full of the whole book. I mean, you can't flip two pages without getting something cool like that. Yeah, as with all, almost all the other Christopher Moore books. I knew you were going to go there. All right, before we get too dark, do you want to do uh, do a wrap-up and give a rating to this? Yeah, I can kick that off if you'd like. Go for it. Um, 
you know, what, what more to say? This is a Christopher Moore book. Um, you know, I knew exactly what I was going to get when I picked it up. It's what I've gotten out of you know, a dozen other Christopher Moore books. Um, great, engaging story, interesting characters, um, just goddamn funny. Um, and I learned a lot about the colored blue and Renaissance painters and syphilis. So, um, you know, it's, it's an entertaining book. It's a light read. Um, you know, something you could, you could tear through in, you know, a couple of sittings. It, it, it's paced well. Like I said, you'll laugh out loud a, a number of times throughout the book and people in the coffee shop will look at you like you're a little crazy. Um, it's Christopher Moore, man. This is four and a half stars. There you go. I don't have much more to, uh, to add to that. Livius is right about everything you just said. Uh, I listened to or yeah, I listened to an interview with Moore once where he said that he basically writes two different types of books. He writes the serious ones and he writes the funny ones. The serious ones are the ones that um, he spends time researching and everything, and the funny ones are the ones that he just makes uh, kind of in between to give him the <laughs> the luxury of, of doing the research for the, the serious ones. I mean, but they're all just great books, and this is no exception. This is definitely one of the serious ones. From what I understand, it took him you know more time than usual to do the research, I think like four years or something like that. Um, I mean, it's got that trademark Chris Moore style. It's just – it's it's like Livia said, it's funny. It's a great story. It's really clever and intelligent. And, it, and yeah, I mean, all around, it's just a very well-rounded read. Moore's books are always, you know, pretty quick to read, but you get a lot out of them too. So, uh, uh this book, I, I just loved, it's going to probably going to go to the top of, of my list of more books that I like top three, probably. So I'm giving it as well a four and a half star rating. This is just a great book. Let's talk about your top three. No, oh. <laughs> it's it's a good thing I made a list of all the books that Moore's written and put it in our notes. <laughs> Makes it much easier for me to figure it out too. All right, you wanna uh, you want me to start off with the top three? Yeah, go ahead. All right, my top three in no particular order. Um, the first book I read by Moore was Lamb, as suggested by Livius. Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal, uh, great book. Um, we talked about it a little bit before, basically the story about Jesus from when he finds out he's going to be our savior, uh, up until, you know, the kind of end that we all know happened and his adventures through life with his kind of best buddy Biff is a really, really great book. And it, all that mix of funny and, and serious all, all together is a great book. Next up stupidest angel <laughs> which i can't i won't talk to i i won't say the thing i want to say because it would spoil it and it was just it's the exact reason i fell so hard for this book um is what he did probably two-thirds of the way through the book that i wasn't expecting at all and and it was just so good but it's uh it's an example of how more will take characters from other books and put them into new situations the angel from the title, actually, I believe was in Lamb, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, a lot of characters from a couple of previous books, Practical Demon Keeping and The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove are in there. And it's just, it's a Christmas book <laughs> that's just ridiculous and out there and hilarious. And um, I can't think of that book without smiling. It was just so funny and crazy. And finally, my third and my top three right now is A Dirty Job, which is um, basically it's a book about a guy who loses his wife. He ends up being a single father and in the process finds out that he's basically like a grim reaper <laughs> mm-hmm. and and the way he deals with it and, and the crazy stuff that, that he goes through uh, being a single father who's 
moving people on to their final, you know, whatever resting place after they die. Um, great book. And, and again, that mix of, of funny and serious that I love about more. Our lists are going to be kind of frighteningly close. Um, Lamb, the gospel, according to Biff, Christ's childhood pal is probably the book I've recommended to people the most after, um, well, Christopher Bear's kiss me, Judas. They're a little bit different in tone and scope. (laughs) (laughs) But if it's somebody that I know, um, couldn't wrap their mind around the Phineas Poe trilogy, then lamb is my, my go-to, um, especially if they're heavily religious. I love recommending it to them. Um, (laughs) but yeah, followed by the stupidest angel again, laugh out loud, funny, very short too. So if you want to wet your feet with a little bit of Christopher Moore, that I believe is the shortest of, of all of his novels. Um, and you know, we're going to differ on the third one fool, which was just um, two books ago for him. It's going to be my, uh, my third funniest, another period piece, um, based on the, the King Lear story told from the eyes of the fool. That's right. Oh, and that reminds me, um, fool is kind of what Moore would consider his last serious book he wrote. And he wrote a couple books in between. And now we have, um, you know, Sacre Blue and in fool, uh, for anybody who's read it, it takes place, you know, in England and they always talk about the fucking French and the fucking French and the fucking French. And so it's funny that his next serious book, I mean, it, it, I'm sure by virtue of the fact that he was, you know, in Europe doing research for, for one book, he ended up getting inspired for the next and everything. But the, the final, the next serious book he writes is about those same fucking French. That is interesting. You pointed that out to me earlier. One other thing I'll say about more that I like that's a it's always a, a, a reward for readers is that there are a lot of crossover characters between his book. So, you know, you had mentioned that you know characters from Coyote Blue and Practical Demon keep keeping up here in the Stupidest Angel, you know, but that's the same way with, you know, the character from Fool appearing in in um, You Suck or Invite Me or you know what I mean? So there's crossover there that's a that's a nice treat. You could put up a map of more characters and kind of draw lines from book to book, which is kinda of cool. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that. It's a big, yeah, like you said, it's a big payoff for the 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 reader. Um, we mentioned it with Clevenger because we we mm-hmm. when we were interviewing Craig Clevenger, we were talking about um, the possibility of of one of the characters in one book having shown up in the other, and he he confirmed it and said that you know what he thought about the idea of crossing over characters being nice for the readers. I I just love it. I love being like I already know this person. It's it's really really nice. That's great. Yeah, a lot of the books. So this list here, including the one we read, is three, six, nine, thirteen novels, and uh, you know, probably like five or six five star novels in there. And then yeah. there's there's the one I couldn't finish, <laughs> which I liked. I'm not going to say it was my favorite, but I definitely liked. Uh, yeah, I liked all couldn't the books. do it. All right, I'll mention it just in case anyone else read it. Fluke, or I know why the winged whale sings. I just couldn't get into it. Probably got about halfway through and just gave up. Well, it happens. We don't know. Not everybody's going to like everything. I know. The rest of them all well, well more than make up for, for, for what I thought about Fluke. So, And I just didn't get it. It's not, you know, like it wasn't that it was written poor. I just, could, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the story. Yeah, that's cool. So, yeah, that's it. That's all we've got on uh, Sacre Blue. Um, our next time we'll mention Sacre Blue will be after um, the 11th of this month when we're going to take booked road trip number three. Um, and go up to Milwaukee and uh, and shove books in Christopher Moore's face and make him uh, make him uh, li- or make him sign our books. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, 
he even the funny thing is on his website he even posted like an FAQ about things to do or not do at one of his uh tour events which I thought was pretty cool. So we're going to be well prepared. Chris, we're not going to hit you with all that BS you don't like. That's me assuming that Chris Moore is going to be listening to this <laughs> review yeah. of his book. <laughs> That's also assuming I read the Q&A and you're not just yelling at me the whole time. Yeah, well, yeah. And <laughs> if Olivia embarrasses me, it's because he didn't do what you told everybody to do. Okay. Chris, <laughs> sign my chest. Sign my chest. <laughs> That's on there. It's yeah. <laughs> uh, see, and I'll just get yelled at then when I do it. God damn it. No what, fun. What signs through chest hair? Sharpie signs <laughs> through everything, man. Okay. Okay, and as Olivia said, we were going to try and uh, throw you some anniversary, uh, one-year birthday kind of call-in stuff throughout. Um, and here's one from Todd Brown, who uh, is the publisher for May December Publications and the guy that made the Midnight Movie Creature Feature anthology happen, which we talked a bit a bunch about earlier this year. Hey, congrats to all you guys over at Booked for taking an entire year of your lives to uh, try and entertain the masses. Uh, here's to a second year, and uh, well, let's, let's hope that you guys are even funnier this time. I think that guy was implying we're not funny enough. You know, yeah, it was it was pretty complimentary throughout, and then he just dropped that thing at the end, and it was just like, what are we starting to get at here? Yeah, I know. So, of course, we hear that, and what do we do? We reach out for help. That's right. Here's a nice new segment um, that I'm not going to introduce. I'm just going to let you hear. This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. This week in Book News, recent sales figures from the Association of American Publishers reveals that sales are up, especially when it comes to ebooks. The sale of electronic gizmos is up to an astonishing 73% from last year. This is predominantly in the youth market, which is up $23 million over last year's $3.9 million. Good job, Hunger Games. Looks like kids are really hungry for reading. In other news, Boat Book Captain Clive Cussler recently purchased the remainder of the Oprah Book Club stickers for his next book, Boat Go Boom Boom. The stickers are expected to increase sales of Boat Go Boom Boom 300% when it leaves port. This is good news as it will offset the cost of the 3% raise Captain Kessler had to give to the person who actually writes his books. Finally, the New York Times bestsellers in fiction recap. The Thief by Clive Kessler dropped from number 3 spot to the number 5 this week. Kill Shot by Vince Fly shoots the competition and stays at 4. Force of Nature by C.J. Box boxes its way into third. Jody Picoult finds out it's not lonely at the top when Lone Wolf drops to number two. Stay Close by Harlan Coben shows that a book about disappearing people can make it a strong showing at the top of the list. That's all for book news. I'm Skip Papersley signing off. So there you go, guys. That's your book to news for this week. It's a segment we hope to see more of in the future, and hopefully that was funny enough for some people. Yeah, grumble, grumble. <laughs> hey, you know what so, the cool part about that was? Huh? We don't have to do a news portion now. That's right. Someone's just going to do it for us, and they're going to sound way cooler than we ever could. So here's some here here's another quick quote for you before we move on to some more, more interesting stuff. Um, and this is someone who actually has nice things to say about us. Hey guys, it's Tovia. I am calling to uh, wish you a wonderful second year for the Books Podcast. I was really pleased with how everything 
uh, has has worked out so well for you guys. I think that you guys put on an amazing show, and um, you're really great at getting everyone uh, involved and, and getting everyone's energy up and everyone excited about reading. And um, that's, like, awesome. I haven't seen that kind of thing since Reading Rainbow. So I'm happy for you and uh, wish you the best. Thanks. And thanks to Payla for leaving that little voicemail for us, which, you know what, brings us to the next uh, the next thing. Perfect segue into the next thing we have, Spine Tingler Awards. That's right. The Spine Tingler Awards launched, um, I think, just in the last few days or last week or something like that. And looking through, Livius and I were talking about this, looking through the different categories, we noticed that there was a lot of familiar names. Um, Livius, you want to kick off with some of the categories we know people from? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, the first category is the um, Sean Ferguson Plunger of Approval Award. Oh, no, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> that was something else. Hold That's on. the booked awards. Come on. Yeah, sorry. Um, best Anthology. Here's how this is going to work. We're really only going to mention the people you should vote for. So this one, this one was a no-brainer. Best Anthology, Warmed and Bound. Um, if you're new to the show, go back and listen to the 20 or so episodes where we <laughs> talked and interviewed people and reviewed the book and did a wrap up and had on 17 of the authors and everything else warmed and bound that needs your vote. So go do that now. All right. For best new voice, we have Donald Ray Pollock, who was a guest on the show with devil all the time, Roger Smith, who wrote dust devils and Jason Stewart, who you may not have heard on this show just yet, but he's the author of Raise a Holler, and he's also with Burnt Bridge, and you're going to hear Jason Reed on our show very, very soon. Um, for Rising Star, that's uh, authors between four and eight novels. Anthony Neal Smith was nominated for All the Young Warriors. Um, no need to say anything else there. If you've listened to this show, you know that we're huge fans of Mr. Smith, and uh, we actually just had a live reading with him on the show from uh, The Wrong Kind of Reading in Chicago. And then for Legend, nine plus novels, um, the name on there you want to vote for is Stephen Graham Jones, and he was nominated for Seven Spanish Angels, one of the best guests we've had on the show. And speaking of Spine Tingler Awards, Pablo Destere, uh recently tweeted, and I quote, I was nominated for zero Spine Tingler Awards. Hmm. What the fuck, Spine Tingler Awards? None? Nothing I wrote? Is this right? Got nominated? So Pablo, not that happy with the Spine Tingle Awards right now, but he did have, I guess, kind of some nice things to say about us. And here's the voicemail that he left for us for our one-year anniversary. Well, hello there, Rob and Livius. This is the infamous and godlike Pablo Destere calling to wish book a happy first birthday. Now, in my heart, I would like to gush enthusiastically about your program, but unfortunately, now that we are direct competitors, I just can't do that. However, I will spare you, my Daniel Day-Lewis, there will be blood impersonation concerning what I will have to do to you now that we're competitors. So I suppose this message balances out in the end to a friendly cheers, boys. As you know, your show was the direct inspiration for mine and Sarah's, and I've no doubt I'll be calling in this time next year to wish you boys more happy returns. Cheers. Keep fighting the good fight. You've got the best thing going with books. You never get enough of Pablo's voice. Like I said before, I could listen to him read the phone book. But thank you, Pablo, <laughs> for, for an awesome message. And even if we are now mortal enemies, um, it's okay. I still think we can have a drink together at some point. That's right. Uh, so... Here, here's the rest of the categories that we, we have uh, BFFs from for Spine Tangler. Uh, best Short Story Collection, 
we uh, we have Frank Bill is one of the people on the list for Crimes in Southern Indiana, so you want to vote for him. We did a review of Crimes in Southern Indiana right after we went down to Cord in Indiana for the release party for that. Uh, next category, Best Crime Fiction Publisher, Blasted Heath. As you know, um, we had Alan Guthrie on from Blasted Heath to talk about uh, a little bit of his writing, but also how Blasted Heath came about. You can check out that episode. Uh, best Short Story on the Web. David James Keaton is one of the nominees for Either Way It Ends with a Shovel. And Stephen Graham Jones is also a nominee for his short story, Silent Game. And finally, uh, there was only like three categories, I think, that we didn't have some sort of booked tie-in to. <laughs> uh, and the final category that we have something we want to mention for is Best Cover. And obviously the choice there is going to be for the Noir at the Bar Anthology, um, Jed Ayers and uh, Scott Phillips put together. So there you go. It's like we've made our own. Uh, what, what's that called when the politicians have like the how to vote? Like they all partner up and stuff. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, like you see them on the signs. Like they'll have like vote and they'll like list oh. like three names and the numbers like that you need to vote. Like that's what we've just put together for people. Yeah, one of those. Yeah, one of those. It's like an election guide. Exactly, like yeah. like booked election guide. So in some of those categories, <laughs> you're gonna have to make your own decision. As sadly we had to do and choose between a couple of. Uh, a couple of great people, um, but you know what? You can probably vote from every device you own, just saying. That's right, and so the Spine Tingler Awards are going on through the end of April, and I believe they said they were going to announce the winners May 1st. Um, so you got some time, but get over there and vote for everybody we just told you to. Because we tell you what to read, we also tell you what to vote. We tell you how to do what to do <laughs> all the damn time. <laughs> we rule your lives. Yeah. Right now, here's what you need to do. You need to listen to this next voicemail. Hey, book guys. This is Nick Corpon. I was calling to say happy one-year anniversary, and may your coming year be full of mlaz, even though I can't understand the goddamn word he says. And that was Nick Corpon with another very cordial call. Thank you very much, Nick. And he mentioned someone who's been absent from the show for, for a little bit now, for quite a few episodes because of the readings and stuff, and what anniversary episode would be complete without this guy, our correspondent from the Netherlands, Malaz Corbier. Congratulations, lads. A whole year putting up with each other is quite the feat. We all know how annoying either one of you can be. But the two of you together? Well done. I do, however, have a question for you, lot. I've been pondering this for a mighty long time. Why? I mean, there must be a law somewhere stating to not give the likes of Richard Thomas this kind of exposure. The authorities are clearly mistaken for not locking him up. Why draw innocent bystanders' attention to him? So, I would like to say, keep up the good work, as long as you don't speak about the Thomas no more. All right, so that was Malaz. Had some nice things to say about us. Not as nice things to say about Richard Thomas, but who could blame him? <laughs> okay, Richard Dude, doesn't listen. Richard doesn't listen to the show. He's never going to hear it. That's true. And he owes me 30 bucks. So That's right. So, um, <laughs> Malaz, hey, it's your anniversary, too. So, happy anniversary, Malaz. That's right. We couldn't have... We couldn't have done it quite as well without Malaz. That's right. And if we don't see you more, Several episodes would have been like 30 seconds shorter. (laughs) That's right. And if we don't see more of Malaz, we're pulling him off the About Us page. But we've got some plans. We've been talking to Malaz recently about doing some episodes with him and stuff. So uh, watch for the the Phoenix-like return of of Malaz Corbier to our show. Hey, book podcast. This is uh, Axel Tyre, the author of many short stories, including the award-winning A Light to Starve By. I mean, it 
it is worthy of rewards. It actually hasn't won any. Uh, it's it's 3 a.m. where I currently am, so you'll have to excuse the mumbling. Anyway, I just called to wish you a happy birthday. You're my favorite book-related podcast out there by far. You're growing so fast. Your daddy's Robin Livius rock pretty hard. Uh, as for what I'd like to see happen in 2012 in the next few years, I have a list. Let me let me go get it. Um, okay, number one, world peace. Number two, access to drinking water, electricity, and education for every single human being on the globe. Number three, focus on the development of renewable energy sources. That's the wrong list. Just let me let me scroll down a bit. Sorry for being real. Okay, uh, number one, more Patterson watch. That shit rules. Number two, force Mlaz to buy a real microphone so that it doesn't sound like a Dutch robot. Number three, sacrifice a virgin to Shubnigarath, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young, so that you may get an interview with any of the following authors. Will Christopher Bear, William Gibson, Joe Lansdale, Michael Shabon, or Laird Barron. Uh, that's about it. Uh, otherwise, just keep on going. You're doing a fantastic job. Okay, I gotta go right now. Uh, peace out, word up, catch you on the flip side, or, or whatever it is cool kids usually say. Later. Um, it's that time of the month again for uh, what's becoming uh, quickly becoming one of our favorite segments. Patterson Watch. Patterson Watch. Now, we received... Two phone calls, both from people claiming to be James Patterson. Now, we obviously know at least one of these people is not James Patterson. <laughs> We're going to let you make the decision. Let's roll one now, and we'll roll one um, into Patterson Watch. Hey, guys. This is James Patterson. Sorry I can't talk to you loud. My mom's in the next room. I just wanted to say thank you so much. Your Patterson Watch has pushed my success to stratosphere. But no. No, Ma. No, no, I'm not on the phone. No, Mom, you're right here for me. I, no, Ma, no, oh, wait. Sorry, guys, I gotta go. Thanks so much. So this month's James Patterson release is uh, Guilty Wives, and that's uh, uh, James Patterson. And, hey, you know what I noticed looking at the cover is that name is almost the same size at the bottom, David Ellis. Um, that's the, the biggest name, yeah, I've seen yeah, so far. Co-authors, there's a... There's a woman wearing completely just all black, black pants, black shirt, and it's a shot from her from behind, and she's handcuffed. So this should be interesting. I'm going to go ahead and read you the synopsis here. No husbands allowed. Only minutes after Abby Elliott and her three best friends step, up, step off a private helicopter, they enter the most luxurious, sumptuous, sensually pampering hotel they have ever been to. Their lavish presidential suite overlooks Monte Carlo, and they surrender to the sun and pool, to the sashimi and sake, to the Bruno Peller champagne. For four days, they're free to live someone else's life. As the weekend moves into pulsating discos, discos, high-stakes casinos, and beyond, Abby is transported to the greatest pleasure and release she has ever known. All right, I'm not going to let you read the whole thing, so I'm going to go with the next part. What happened last night? In the morning's harsh light, Abby awakes on a yacht surrounded by police. Something awful has happened. Something impossible. Unthinkable. Abby, Winnie, Serena, and... God damn these names. <laughs> and Bria? Bria? Mm -hmm. Bra? Yeah, Bra. <laughs> are arrested and accused of the foulest crime imaginable. <laughs> Reading a James Patterson book. And now... See, I was nice, and I was, I was nice <laughs> while you were reading. <laughs> 
And now the vacation of a lifetime becomes the fight of a lifetime for survival. Guilty Wives is the ultimate indulgence, the kind of nonstop joyride of excess, friendship, betrayal, and danger that only James Patterson can create along with David Ellis. Apparently. That actually wasn't mentioned in there. <laughs> well, it Not says, yeah, I, I added Davis, David Ellis at the end, but it's just because I'm a nice guy. So um, that just <laughs> came out a few days ago. Um, man, I'm really looking forward to reading this. I'm just trying <laughs> to fit it in on my list of, of books to read. Uh, you can pick that up for zero in the Kindle edition. I don't understand that. Hold on a second. I might get me a free copy of this bad boy right here. Kindle edition. Let's Hello. It is free. Includes free wireless delivery. I'm buying this right now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So while you were listening, this is how easy it is when you have a kid. We just got a free copy. First 23 chapters, free preview. Oh, that's more than I was going to read anyway. Yeah. So apparently only the free preview is available in Kindle, which that kind of isn't very cool. (laughs) Let's talk about that for a second. So there is a Kindle (laughs) edition of the preview, but you can't actually just buy it on the Kindle to read. That's what it looks like. Oh, that's a bad, bad oh, no. decision, James Patterson. The Kindle edition is fourteen ninety nine. If you click the little plus next to where it says Kindle edition. Gotcha. Should down. we remove this whole part then? No, no. This is good. I want to keep okay. this. <laughs> okay. So for fifteen dollars, which is, which is um, uh, let's see, a dollar and uh, thirty cents less than the hardcover, um, you can get the Kindle edition. So that's great pricing right there. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about this, and if there was, there's got to be someone out there that just reads the free previews, and so they only know like the first like half, you know, or whatever, <laughs> of every James Patterson book. And I gotta imagine that's probably the best way to read James Patterson. Nice, nicely. <laughs> well, I wonder if James has anything to say in this uh, in this voicemail he left us about that. Hello, this is James Patterson. I just wanted to wish booked a happy one-year anniversary. I always look forward to Patterson Watch so I could tell when the books with my name on them come out because I don't write them and I have no idea. I'm going to go roll around in piles with my own money now. See you next year, booked. All right. I don't know about you, Livius, but I'm getting kind of tired of these call-ins. I hope there's not much more on the on the docket. <laughs> Oh, you just wait and see what's yet to come. Uh, so, we've been saving the the best, and by best I mean the absolute longest <laughs> for, for for last. But before we get out of Patterson Watch, I've uh, I'm going to start randomly picking one review to read from the reviews that are on Amazon with Patterson Watch. So um, there are 18 customer reviews in, um, and most of them are the majority of them are one star reviews. So it, it's it's spread pretty even. Uh, I'm going to scroll down and randomly read one of the not good reviews. So the fir- first one star review I've gotten is from Patricia J. Mills. Thank you for uh, letting us read this on uh, on our show. Um, the title is The Very Worst with three exclamation points. So you know she's serious. And a comma for some reason. Oh, no, no. That was put in there by Amazon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So here is the review. Uh, I have read bad Patterson novels before. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. I swear this is random. I did not read this review. So so this this one is uh smart enough to go back for more. Alright, so let me start again. We'll try to keep this serious. I have read bad Patterson novels before, but this is the absolute worst of all time. <laughs> Boring, dreary, incredibly stupid. This novel should win a prize for bad writing. So Rob, maybe we should make that another book. <laughs> 
award for next year. All right. I just couldn't finish it and once again feel ripped off. So this is not the first time <laughs> she's felt ripped off by a James Patterson book. I guess the James Patterson of the past is gone. This book is undeserving of even one star. Yet she gave it one star because I think you have to. I think you can only mark it one star or lower. Wow. So, Scathing. Um, yeah, the James the James Patterson of the past is no more because now it's David Ellis. And that's what happened there. So. Oh, you anyway. know what I want to say? Uh it does say Amazon verified purchase, so I think that means that she actually spent the fifteen dollars to read this book that she then completely hated. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yeah, it was the hardcover even. So, yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. I'm looking forward to next month when she <laughs> reviews another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just track this uh, this reviewer. Oh, that might be fun to do. Can we just read people's reviews like that? I've never tried. Can we just? Is there like a link? Yeah, oh, there is. We can see what else Patricia J. Mill. Oh, we're gonna have Patricia Mills watch the Patchwork Marriage by Jane Green. Last Patricia Breath by Michael Prescott. It's got forty reviews. We could make an episode out of this. Mm. All right. <laughs> so, any rate, we'd like to thank um, James Patterson's both of them um, for calling in uh, for the show. That was uh, very kind of you, and we're glad that you look forward to hearing Patterson watch at least once a month on the show. That's right. Thanks, James. And the James Imposter, whichever one you are. Yeah, because we know at least one of them is not the real James Patterson. <laughs> at least. <laughs> at least, at a minimum. So. Well, you know, if James Patterson called in, he would just have, like, the butler do it for him or something. Or his mom. Or his mom. Anyway. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're it's winding down. <laughs> It's almost time to put this bad boy to bed. Uh, but it wouldn't be an anniversary episode where we had people call in if we didn't hear from one of our favorite guests. The person who won uh, most frequent guest host so far, I believe, and also created one of our favorite uh, upcoming booked awards, the, the Plunger of Approval. Um, here is a rambling, really strange, almost seven minutes of Sean Ferguson calling to give us some love for our one year anniversary. Don't don't tune out. All seven minutes are totally worth it. Totally worth it. Hey, this is Sean Ferguson. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. I've been watching these people. These people down the street moved out the other day. And so they've got all this crap laying out by the end of the street. <clears throat> I guess for a trash to come pick it up. So I've been watching the rest of the neighborhood come and drop their shit off in front of this house. It's spectacular. I mean, it's funny because you have to live in this town to understand, like, this town's, like, crazy ridiculous with its fucking, um, ordinances and shit. So, so these people are just dropping shit off in front of this house. It's pretty spectacular. I'm thinking about, like, taking my old underwear down there and just dropping it off. I'm going to need a biohazard bag, though. I love you, bye. Sean Ferguson here again. Uh, so, yeah, booked. It's one year old now. I guess three or four more anniversaries. And I might try and fuck it. <laughs> uh... Um, yeah, that's all I got. 
All right, so um, let's see. You in in one year you conquered um, a fantastic anthology that uh, blew up your uh, subscribership or whatever, and uh, you introduced to the masses uh, some some fresh names names I at least never heard of. Pretty thankful for that. Uh, probably would never have found uh, David James Keaton, which is pretty great. I wouldn't have heard him go on and on about how uh, Liam Neeson has a specialized set of skills and he's going to come and get you and then hunt down wolves or some shit. Uh, Anthony Neil Smith, uh, I wouldn't have, you know, uh, been introduced to Anne Rice, which I really, I can't repay you two assholes enough for that. Uh, um, uh, and, and you've started some pretty great, uh, programs too, uh, introducing people to genres like, um, Bizarro, yeah, wow, god damn. And uh and the the hard boiled stuff with uh, Nick Corpin. I like that episode. Although anything with Nick Corpin really is um, heart nipple inducing. You know what I'm saying. He's a sexy, sexy bitch. Uh really looking forward to year two. Really looking forward to being on your show some more so I can say poop and talk about feces. Um, can't wait to officially destroy Laz Corbier's, uh, record of being on your show. And, um, yeah, I have a title, uh, a title to defend as, as the most guest star spots. And I plan on, uh, holding on to that. Cause really, nobody's as interesting as I am. Frank said so. I mean, he hasn't said so, but he thinks it, and he's going to say so one of these days. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, I love you guys. I want to cuddle with you guys. I can't wait to see you again uh, in Boston. You were great to hang out with in Chicago. Um, one year, that's a great achievement. Um, it's been a fantastic year for me listening to you guys. I'm going to tongue-punch your answering service. I finally get on a roll saying something, and it cuts me the fuck off, and now I've totally, completely forgotten what it was I wanted to say. God damn it. Uh, yeah, and tongue-punching your, your voicemail service would really suck, because I have a throat infection. Really, I kind of wanted to do this drunk, just so that, you guys would have something to shake your heads at, but I've already talked about poop and said fuck a lot, so there you go. I deliver once again. I am man. I've also talked about cuddling with you guys. Um, of course, I meant with no pants on, uh, so, you know, there's that. Uh, booked podcast. Best podcast around. Way better than those movie review bastards. 
You crushed them, man. You destroyed them. You went on their show and finished them. You are the champion. All right, that's all I got. Love you, bye. So, <laughs> there's four <laughs> separate voicemails from, from Sean Ferguson. Um, I had to rob forward these over to me when we got him a couple of days ago just laying in bed listening to him on my phone and just laughing my ass off um fantastic and that's why he has the most guest host spots on the show it is and i gotta tell you my first thought when i listen to those is i've got this old desk that i need to get rid of (laughs) (laughs) i wish i was in new jersey (laughs) so i could uh anyway um livius yes uh We've heard a lot of people call in and say what they thought about our, our one year anniversary. What are what are your thoughts? Um, man, I you know I can't believe it's been a year. Maybe like seventy eight episodes. Um, it's gonna sound a lot like the year in review, but man, I'm just I'm just floored that we're still here. That the you know that there's people listening and looking forward to hearing the show and just ecstatic at the number of, of friends that we've made through the show. I mean, it's it's a whole new ball game for us since we started doing this and. Uh, I just hope that we can keep it up, and I hope we're here for a second year and have made that many more friends and have turned uh, turned readers on to you know lesser known authors or maybe someone they wouldn't have picked up without you know someone spending an hour goading them into it. So, just thrilled. Yeah, I um I'm gonna have to say that I, I very selfishly am happy for two reasons. One, we got to meet and talk to some really great authors, including some of our heroes. Um, and two, we actually had people tell us that you know. Like like the uh, the Frank Edler uh, call in from earlier, where he was saying, you know, that had he not listened to us, there's books that he never would have read that he really enjoyed. So, I mean, that's really what we did this for um, was to was to kind of expand the conversation about really good books, and it's that's the most rewarding part is knowing that it actually worked because <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing, uh, but evidently we did something right. So, really glad we had this year, and I'm looking forward to just destroying year number two and doing some crazy really good stuff yeah i was just in it for the big fat checks yeah well <laughs> so did i'm you, waiting did you... for year two to see if those checks start <laughs> I was showing up. say did you get some big fat checks because if you did you didn't tell me about it no neither mr barnes nor mr noble has decided <laughs> to cash in on this bad boy yet but it's coming i'm telling you it's just a matter Honestly. of time it's inevitable before, before we sell out and it's all a bunch of uh of as heard on podcast advertising <laughs> that's right but we're not done this is this is the end of year one and we're going to go ahead and kick off year two this week with uh with some more special events that's right we've got um i'll talk about the next book on the on the show uh we've got the next book we're going to be talking about is uh Stephen graham jones book zombie bake-off we apologize to Stephen for taking so long to get to it there's just been so much on our plates um he, he had his book come out recently i think within the last month or so and we've been wanting to get to it and uh finally uh next week you're going to hear more about that and before you get to that you are going to hear um the third and final um at least for now awp installment of readings it's going to be the uh burnt bridge flywheel crossover reading from the world famous billy goat tavern um which uh, means exactly one thing what does it mean specifically rob what <laughs> huh? What? I wasn't paying attention. More David James Keaton. Ah, so. uh, there it is. Yes. 
Yeah, some uh, some great stuff from Keaton coming up and uh, uh, just a slew of other people. Um, Jason Stewart, who runs Burnt Bridge, reads too, and he does a fantastic little uh, little story. There's just lots of great stuff. So that's going to be another um, four-part series. Uh, we're going to run you know, roughly whatever half hour each as uh, but Rob to work cutting those bad boys up. That's right. And so that's just the kickoff of, of year number two. Um, slightly better audio quality, far better hosting abilities, and um, we're going to have big reach this year. We're going to have some big things coming up. So thanks for this year, and we're looking forward to the next one. And that's it for our anniversary edition of Booked. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.